Hello and welcome back to another edition of Back to Jerusalem podcast. I am Eugene Bach and I will be your host for this time where I am coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Greece. I have been in Athens now for about 24 hours where we have been doing a Back to Jerusalem broadcast um, about the movement of the gospel moving westward. We have uh, been doing a recording now for, um, I would say, the last three years, two years, three years, where we have been following the good news of Jesus Christ from the moment that it left his lips on the Mount of Olives. And after that, uh, we are following where it went and what impact it made. For the most part, we have uh, come to the conclusion that it moved westward. As soon as the disciples heard uh, the great commission given by Jesus Christ himself, uh, we are told that angels came down and basically uh, asked them, why are you still standing here? Why are you still looking up? And um, uh, they then followed up by saying, don't you know that just as he ascended up into heaven, so will he return? And then they moved from the Mount of Olives down um, uh, back to Jerusalem. That is a westward movement. I was just in Jerusalem a couple months ago where I did a couple podcasts from there. Actually, I did um, a couple of uh, live broadcasts uh, together with Brother Yun from the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and if you're ever on the Mount of Olives, when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you're actually facing the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And when you go from the Mount of Olives, as we're told that in the Book of Acts is the direction that the disciples moved to. So when they moved from Acts 1-8 down the Mount of Olives um, through uh, the gates into Jerusalem, they were coming from a westward direction. So already from the very moment that the Great Commission was given to the disciples, they moved in a westward direction. Once they went into Jerusalem, they were there and they prayed. And then, of course, we uh, see the recordings of Luke and of the day of Pentecost, uh, which took place there in Jerusalem. And then uh, it's amazing to me how Luke decides to follow Peter. Could have followed anybody else, but he followed Peter. And Peter moved west. Now, if you're familiar with Jerusalem, there are uh, several gates that surround the city or the, the, the wall that is around the city. There are several gates within that um, uh, wall, uh, those walls. There's about eight. Some people say nine. Uh, but it, there's eight that are active, nine altogether. One that it is not used. The eastern gate has been uh, blocked up. Uh, so you can see bricks uh, covering the area where the western gate used to be. And Peter, he goes from um, uh, Jerusalem to Joppa. Now there's a Joppa gate that it's the western gate of the city of Jerusalem. And if you go through the Joppa gate, it will be the road that leads you to Joppa. And it was there that uh, Peter had this uh, vision, this image of um unclean foods uh, or unclean animals in which he was told to eat, which was a um, divine revelation from God to take the good news to um, the very first Gentile, Cornelius. Interestingly, um, I was just in Rome uh, following the footsteps of Paul, 
So basically we see the book of Acts follow Peter, and then from Peter transition to Paul, and then from Paul we see uh, he takes the gospel westward. And so we are following in his footsteps westward. And today uh, we are in Athens, Greece. We were Yesterday we were in Rome, Italy, uh, where Peter and Paul both had taken their last breath. Why we are doing this is because we see a clear movement of God moving from Jerusalem into Asia Minor, from Asia Minor uh, down into Africa. Uh, Africa doesn't really get covered a lot when we look at church history. Mainly we focus on that which we have records for. And what we have records for is found mainly in Europe. I mean, the Europeans were able to record and preserve the records of uh, Christianity and the growth of Christianity and the main players of Christianity. Um, that's one thing that Catholicism has been very, very good at. I would love, I would absolutely love to be able to get into the book chambers of the Vatican. When I was standing in the Vatican, I was there with uh, Pastor um, Danny Miller from the UK. He is helping run our UK office. And as we were standing there in the city of the Vatican, I was telling him, man, Dude, I would love to be able to go into that library um, from the first time that I saw Tom Hanks in, the, in that uh, movie about, uh, you know, looking up ancient history or whatever from um, the very first century church. Um, when I saw Tom Hanks in that library of the Vatican, I, and I, I started to think about all the records of history, not just history. But can you imagine the things that the church leaders from the very beginning wrote down, things that they pondered, things that when they were praying, God just downloaded information, especially among the monks who spent so much of their life in isolation, just praising God, studying his word, learning so many things that many of us are forced to relearn because we can't go the easy way and read from those writings that are in the Vatican. Um, but as we're standing there in Rome, the very last uh, place where Peter and Paul were at, um, we were really con um, had the, the confirmation of that Western movement. For whatever reason, the book of Acts doesn't follow those that went east. It only follows uh, Peter and Paul primarily as they move west. And from uh, Africa and the role that Africa played from, you know, the... Um, Tertullian and um, Augustine and the influence of um, the very first Bible schools. The very first Bible schools, by the way, were like in Alexandria, Egypt, northeastern Africa. We had Carthage. These were the main heartbeats of Christianity and Christian theology. Uh, some of the first ideas about the Trinity, um, the ideas about e Ecclesia and, the, and what a church, the body of Christ looks like was developed there primarily in Africa and had a huge influence um, on the Nicene Creed um, after uh, Constantine became emperor of Rome. Anyway, um, as that gospel continued from Africa and Europe all the way around to the Americas, and then you have North and South America completely transformed, and then we are where, where we are at today in China, where we are seeing by far the world's largest revival um, taking place in China, the world's largest church in South Korea. 
we can see that Western movement continuing to go all the way back to Jerusalem because between China and Jerusalem, that is the big black hole. That is the vortex where the gospel has yet to penetrate. We have history, of course, in the past where um, the church in the East was quite strong, but that faded away and we're seeing it to continue to fade away um, under the attacks of Islam. And, uh, and of course, communism played a very big role in Asia for erasing any stronghold of the gospel. But that played right into the plan of God, I believe, and what we are seeing today in China. But one of the things that I noticed, because today I'm in Athens, Greece. And in Athens, as we walked around the city, I saw so many um, gods and goddesses that were made out of pillars of stone that people made with their own two hands, created out of their own energy, their own resources, their own sweat, blood, and tears, making these gods that have no voice. They cannot hear. They, they, they cannot speak. They have no power. You made it with your own hands and you're going to praise it? That was very much the situation in ancient Greece, especially as we see it in Athens in uh, the book of Acts chapter 17, when Paul arrives in Athens unplanned, completely unplanned. He arrives in Athens. Um, he's actually not even ready for ministry. It says that he is waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. He sends for them, tells them, you know, come without hesitation. And he's kind of walking around the marketplace almost like a tourist. But as he's walking around, he's seeing all these different gods. And when I think about the gods that he must have seen in the marketplace, I went to the exact place, the marketplace that he would have walked through um, during his day. Um, it's, it's right at the base of, of, um, the main Greek temples that you see, the Parthenon, the, the, the big Acropolis that's there at the top of the mountain. Um, at the base is where we see this marketplace where, um, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato would have actually been. And, their culture was everywhere within that marketplace because the the marketplace as it still exists today, um, the ruins of that marketplace, you can see where the different maybe stalls or shops were, definitely where the pillars of the supporting walls were. But then you also see where the gods and the goddesses were, where the shopkeepers prayed to their deities. And that seems so foreign to us now, but the truth is, if you go to China, if you've ever been to China, if you live in China, you will know that there's still very much that culture. There's still very much the idea that um, if I bring this God into my store, into my shop, it will bring good luck. It will bring good fortune. It will bring longevity to me and my family. So you have gods um, in the taxis. You have deities at the storefront entrances to different shops, depending on where you are, of course, in China. Um, for instance, in Hong Kong, when they open up a new store, the very first thing they do on the very first day is they have you know the dragon dance, where a, a, a dragon uh, team comes in and does a performance that brings good luck. Uh, it is this mystical idea 
of uh, gods and goddesses, demons, and repelling those demons. That is ancient history, maybe, for a place like Athens. However, it's not ancient history in much of the world where we are today. What I find fascinating is that if you look in the news, uh, you will see that in Hunan province, they built a statue of Chairman Mao. This this was um, from the time that we're doing this recording. This just happened about a week ago where they're building this. It's more than 100 feet high. It's this massive golden statue of Mao Zedong. And this massive golden statue of Mao Zedong that they are creating was going to be this thing of pride. I mean, Mao Zedong's role in Hunan province was so prominent. I mean, Zhengzhou was kind of the center of a lot of the uh, movements that broke out among the students, among the unions to support communism and what Mao Zedong was doing in China in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. And we see this big statue that is being made in one of his one of his strong areas, one of the areas where Mao is still very much supported. And in the area that he is supported, where they're building this big statue, um, the government was reporting that actually um, the acceptance of Mao Zedong and kind of the the cults following of Mao Zedong is on the rise. Um, this is a report from the Guardian, um, Guardian.com that I am reading. It says, last month, the state-run Global Times claimed Mao worship was on the rise in rural parts of China. The newspaper pointed to the construction of temples and statues dedicated to the former leader in the provinces of Shanghai, Guangdong, and Hunan. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm a bit amused because I think of, you know, taxi drivers that have like a sign of Mao Zedong. They, if, if you've traveled in China and you've taken a taxi in China, sometimes you can see these um, golden pictures and they're mounted onto the dashboard of the taxis. And the picture of Mao Zedong is facing the passengers. So one time, you know, in a cheeky manner, I asked the driver, I said, um, I said, hey, so what is that? That picture that you have there on your dashboard, and he said, "Oh, that's uh, that's Mao Zedong." I said, "Yeah, I know who it is, but why do you have it there?" And he said, "Well, it brings me good luck, and it provides protection for the the taxi and and the passengers." I said, "Hmm, okay, interesting. Do you think that maybe Mao Zedong can face the road?" Because his picture was facing back towards the passengers. I mean, I thought, you know, if Mao could see the road, maybe he would be able to um, help us a little bit better by making sure we don't get into a crash, which is very, very possible when driving on the crazy roads in the in the insane traffic in China, especially places like Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, he didn't find the comment amusing, uh, but I did. I, I It's okay. I can amuse myself. But here they are building this large... Um, uh, temple. It's not a temple, but this this massive statue in Hunan province, and they didn't even get it finished. They spent a half, oh, more than a half a million U.S. dollars on building this big gold statue. Now it's not obviously not made of real gold. Um, I don't know what they uh, used as the outside material, but it looks like real gold. Like it's kind of a gold shiny statue, and it's huge. I mean, it's bigger than anything in the area. It's almost like a skyscraper. And I think that they were building it thinking that it would be a major tourist attraction. They were wrong. Actually, the Chinese were ticked. 
they protested this big Mao Zedong statue being built in, in, in Hunan province, not far from Zhengzhou. Mao Zedong. I mean, this is the, the leader that the Communist Party clings to. And the locals the, had protested so much that they are now, even though they spent a half a, more than a half a million U.S. dollars to build it, and they were almost completely finished with the construction. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at a picture from theguardian.com, and the picture is basically, he's, he's finished. His body, his legs, he's sitting down, he's in a sitting position over 100 feet high. He's completely finished. It looks like they were working on the, the, the chair or whatever it was that he was sitting on. That you can still see is is all covered with scaffolding. But not, the, the major work was done. The the face, the the jacket, the, the, the pant legs, I mean with the, the creases as they flow down to his boots, all of that was completely finished. And the locals said, no way, not in our area. So they wanted it to be taken down. And I, if you know China, the government doesn't really listen to the people very often. But something happened because the local residents were in an uproar to the point where the government has decided to tear it down. It's being done quietly. They were advertising its building but they are not advertising it to be taken down. It's being taken down. What I find interesting about that is that the Chinese, as Christianity continues to rise, especially in Hunan province, that is one of the, the cradles of Christianity for China today, for the underground house church. The cradle for Christianity in the underground house church is really there in Hunan province in Anhui province. When we talk about the large networks of underground house churches, those are from Hunan province, Anhui province, and, and sometimes Shandong province, but mainly Hunan. Brother Yun, the heavenly man from Hunan province. Uh, Zhang Rong Liang, uh, the book that we just put out back mm -hmm. to Jerusalem, just put out a book on Zhang Rong Liang um, called I Stand with Christ from Hunan province. Um, Peter Xu, Hunan province. These are three of the probably the most well names anywhere in the world on uh, Christianity in China, and this is the home their home province, and the people did not want an idol of Mao Zedong. I just find that fascinating. I mean, if I look at a place like um, Athens, where I'm at right now. And I see the kind of comfort that the people were looking for, the kind of insurance policy the people were looking for. I can see that there was something that was a part of that statue that they put their trust in. They put their insurance in. They said, if I die tonight, I trust in this piece of stone that I created myself. If I start a business today, I put my trust in this deity to provide me with good luck and fortune. If not my trust in their blessing, at least my protection against their wrath. But that's not what the people of China are saying today. They are saying, we do not accept this Mao Zedong as an idol. Maybe he's a historical figure in our past. Most of the people that I would know that, that I know, 
they would probably say he should serve as a reminder in the same way that Auschwitz serves as a reminder for the Germans. May we never repeat the history that came under Mao Zedong, where more than 70 million Chinese were killed. If you put your trust in a person who, by the way, the Dalai Lama did, if you have not read our book, The Underground Church, I advise you to please log on to backtojerusalem.com and at least look at buying the ebook because there is a chapter in there where I talk about um, the Dalai Lama, the leader of all the Buddhists, the the peaceful guy, the the almighty, the wise Dalai Lama, um, where the Dalai Lama actually writes and acknowledges the deity of Mao Zedong. Sounds crazy, right? Many people have never heard that. But actually from his own pen, from his own writing, he made it known that the sun of wisdom rises on Mao Zedong and may he lead in his deity the people of China into the promised land, including, including the Dalai Lama. He was ready to follow Mao Zedong. He was young. He was a young boy, of course, granted. But the reason I point that out is not to um, tear down a person, but just to show that no man is able to create a deity with his own hands or reign as a deity. You know, prior to um, uh, Jesus being born and Paul coming to Athens, there was a deity who came uh, to Greece with a primary focus on destroying the great city of Athens. That was Darius, King Darius, and then, of course, his son, King Xerxes. They believed that they were deities. Those that were the emperors of Rome that also came and occupied Athens, they considered themselves to be deities, just as Mao Zedong considered himself to be a deity. It's interesting that today I can go to the grave of Mao Zedong in Tiananmen Square. Today I can go to um, the place where many emperors set foot, where many great men came to the city of Athens. Oh, I can I can even go to uh, Shushan, the the former capital of Persia. But those that claim to be deities. Their bodies are in the ground. Their bones are all that remain. Their bodies have decayed and shown that they came from the dust and to the dust they return. But a couple months ago, together with Brother Yun, we went to the tomb in the garden. We went to the place where Jesus was laid after being crucified. And that tomb is empty. That tomb, there was no body. That tomb gave evidence to the one true God. And he may be unknown to many people. And that's why today when we were in Athens, we went over Acts chapter 17. Because it was in Acts chapter 17 where God led Paul on an unplanned trip. 
And this is something that you're going to hear in the video series. And if you would like to do a Bible study, I would encourage you. I, I would even plead with you, please follow Back to Jerusalem and try to get this Back to Jerusalem Bible study that we are going to be um, making available, hopefully at the end of this year. This Bible study, I promise you, is going to be like no other Bible study you've ever done before. Now, I know a lot of people say that, but what is different about this one? If you've done Bible studies today, many of the Bible studies um, are pretty straightforward. Many of them go into cotton candy material where they, they tell you, you know, God is good, God is love, God is joy, and all of that is true. But the issue becomes that you don't really grow from it. You don't re you're not really challenged in your spirit. Sometimes, I know that it may not be fun, I know that it may not be comfortable, but what if you challenge yourself to the point where you ask your, yourself questions that maybe you're scared of because you don't have the answer. What if we ask ourselves questions in the way that Job did? Like real questions. Where we question the things that we are facing in life. Where we stand before God like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we make our doubts known to God. I'm not talking about standing in front of a crowd of people. And, and, and being like a philosopher and bringing out these, these challenges uh, for us to have uh, you know, a, a type of um, game with. I'm talking about in your closet, in your prayer closet, in your time with Jesus Christ. You ask these real questions. These questions that go to the depth of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And acknowledge the lack of understanding that you have. That's what we're doing with this study. Where we are following the gospel, moving from Jerusalem around the world. And along the way, we are asking really tough questions. And we're not even necessarily providing an answer. You know, a lot of these Bible studies today, they they're, they got these workbooks where they have, you know, the question and then you fill out the answer. And then the answer is actually found somewhere within the previous section. And you have to write down basically word for word kind of what they have written. But what if the author of that book didn't fully understand everything that he read in the Bible and that he's sharing from the Bible? What if... What he thought he understood, he actually misunderstood. And what he misunderstood, he is sharing or he, she is sharing with you. And you are learning that misunderstanding and repeating it, thinking that that's the truth. Oftentimes, I think one of our challenges is, and I've really learned this from the Chinese because they don't have access to materials around the world like many people in the West do. They don't have access to commentaries and, and the wonderful Bible study guides that we have today. And all of those are good. All of those are amazing materials. But sometimes I think that I myself can get on this track where I spend more time reading things about the Bible than the Bible. And the things that are written about the Bible are fallible. Doesn't mean they're all wrong, but I can't guarantee that they're all right. So I have to read everything with just a bit of caution. Because this is one understanding of the Bible. And when I go back through history, 
like I am now in, in, in Athens. And I see the churches that were started by the disciples themselves. When I see the churches that are being attacked in Syria and Iraq that were started by the disciples of, of Jesus Christ, they were, the, the people that were a part of those churches were hearing the gospel from the horse's mouth. They were, the people that were trained and discipled by Jesus himself were the ones that started these churches that I feel so, I don't know, like I'm, like I'm a major foreigner in their services, like the Greek Orthodox Church or the, you know, the, the churches here in Athens. Uh, I see the ceremonies and the practices and, and a lot of these things are just so foreign to me. And foreign, oftentimes, we equate as being wrong, right? Or am, I might be the only one where uh, I see a practice or somebody that praises God and worships God in a different way. So therefore, I identify that as being different Indifferent must be wrong because I have learned from the Bible through cultural teachers that were in my culture and taught me about Jesus as they saw it in their culture. But what if we can step outside of that culture just for a moment like Paul did in chapter 17 of Acts when he goes on to Mars Hill he arrives in the city, by the way, completely by accident. It was not on his agenda. He did not plan to be in, in Athens. If you remember, he had split off from um, uh, Barnabas and uh, Barnabas's nephew, um, Mark. So John Mark, because he left during the first mission trip, Paul did not want to travel with him again, but Barnabas did want to travel with him, and that led to a disagreement. So Barnabas and uh, Mark leave. They go a separate route, and then uh, Paul goes together with Silas, and then his main goal is to go to all of the churches that were planted during the first missionary journey. But God has a different plan. How many times do we plan to do things and then God interrupts our plans and we get ticked, right? I do. I mean, if I have something on my agenda, for instance, I've got a flight going to Chicago and I miss my flight because of a, a late connection or whatever. Oh, I'm fuming mad and I will, you know, start treating people badly. Um, I will, you know, start to um, sulk and uh, grumble. And uh, just be mad at everything. The food sucks. This car sucks. My room sucks at the hotel. Everything. You know, everything just is tainted by the bad experience of having my plans changed. But Paul, when he tries to go to Asia, is stopped by the Holy Spirit. When he tries to go north to Bithynia, he's stopped again. And it's in this vision that he has where, where a man cries out from Europe, from Macedonia, that leads him to northern Greece which is Macedonia, Thessalonica, and that area was northern Greece, today's northern Greece. And because he ticked everybody off, because he was making everybody mad, um, he ended up having to basically run for his life and get out of Dodge, and he was taken down by some friends that helped him get to Athens. And when he's in Athens, he thinks, okay, I'm just going to hang out here until Silas and Timothy come. Tell Silas and Timothy to get on over here. And basically, he's just going to wait for them. But instead... He's walking through the marketplace, and I was walking through that marketplace today. 
and you should have seen some of the objects that are still there today that represent the very marketplace that he would have walked through. And at the top of the mountain from that marketplace is Mars Hill. And when I went there, when I walked up, I climbed up Mars Hill and I set up on Mars Hill and I could see the whole town of Athens. It was there that Paul said, I've walked through your city. I've seen all the gods that you have. But there was one that caught my attention. The one that was ascribed to the unknown God. Today, I want to introduce to you this unknown God, which is placed out on one of your altars. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what happened. And the people that were there at Mars Hill, they were ready to uh, use reason and logic to turn Paul into a theological pretzel in a matter of minutes, but they couldn't. Because Paul was aware of the prophet epitomies, and we will get more into this in our Bible study series, but the, that prophet lived 600 years prior to Paul, and he had come to deliver Athens out of famine. And the way that he did that was he offered a sacrifice to a god that he fell down and, and commissioned the rest of Athens to also acknowledge their ignorance of the god that can deliver them. And he apologized and asked for forgiveness and mercy from the unknown God for not knowing his name. And when the, the curse was lifted from Athens, the masons that had built the altars, they came over to Epitomes and said, to what name should we inscribe on these altars? And, and, and Epitomes told them, we shall not put any name. We came to him and found mercy in his ignorance. We shall not offend him. By pretending to know his name. So the, the, the masons simply put to the unknown God. And these were place markers to remember the power of this unknown God. And Paul, when he was there, they, the, the, the leaders of Athens were ready to devour him. But instead, Paul used cross-cultural evangelism and flipped the script, shared the gospel, and on this unplanned trip, a journey that he did not have in his calendar. On this trip, he was able to see, um, at the end of chapter 17, we see that one woman, one man, and some others came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? When we submit ourselves to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And the people of China, they see that as well. They have submitted to the God that they now know. He's no longer unknown. And because they know him in Hunan province, they know that it is not Mao Zedong. And that's one of the reasons why they did not want his statue to be built as a remembrance of some sort of glory that he had brought upon Hunan province. I wonder, this is just a guess, I wonder if they would have reacted the same way if a statue of Jesus would have been built in Hunan. I have a sneaking suspicion. I could be wrong. But I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe, just maybe, they would have been very accepting of that because that is the place where the church is growing every single day. 
And I'm so thankful that we have supporters like you that continue to support Back to Jerusalem and the Back to Jerusalem vision of the Chinese evangelists. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Uh, Again, this is Back to Jerusalem and Eugene Bach coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Greece. Thank you so much. God bless you.